Thanks be to God. You can take that. It's okay. Jeez, thanks. Well, welcome everybody again to church. I encourage you to keep that um, passage open if you have it. That would be great. Let me pray before we look at the scriptures together. Um, there's some challenges today as usual. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Genesis. And we thank you that we've spent, we're spending 10 weeks just looking at some key passages within this book. And we do pray that as we continue to read and engage with this scripture, that your gospel may be made even clearer and that we may find great comfort in that message of the gospel. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, I have a few words to share about modern technology with you today. What a tremendous gift modern technology is. We all actually have, most of us have supercomputers in our hands. They live in our pockets and our access to information is more efficient than ever before. We have much to, to thank God for when it comes to modern technology. But even though we enjoy the benefits of email, texting, social media, there's one major flaw. Our ability to have thoughtful dialogue on key issues is no longer commonplace. Think about it. In-depth conversations are becoming rarer each day. If we try to learn a new skill on YouTube, we will choose the two-minute video rather than the 10-minute extended version. If we desire to read a book, we often on look online for a one-page summary of the key ideas. If we want to discover something about a new scientific discovery, we will often rather go to the scientist, listen to a comedian. In the soundbite culture of today, we prize brevity and speed over complexity and patience. And this has created, I think, a global problem. The soundbite information has rewired our brains. And we're seeing that with new research coming out amongst the emerging generation. Wisdom, I believe, is now trumped by pithiness, simple statements, unsophisticated catchphrases, outshine extended dialogue on the human condition. The quick and emotive reply now outperforms the careful and detailed argument. And so the virtue of good communication, I believe, is no longer in fashion. We're losing what it looks like to have complex debates and dialogues and communication on key ideas. And so how has this impacted society? Well, I think that the breakdown in healthy communication has created a culture of increased hostility. Hostility comes from the top, our politicians. We see that elections, all of them saying horrible things to each other, and it flows right down into the deepest cracks of our society. We are, as Australia and as a world, one big dysfunctional family, a nation who has lost the art of wise, meticulous, patient communication. But even though we are most even though we've mostly lost the art of good communication, I am hopeful because there's age-old wisdom in Genesis chapter 37, which we just read. In this passage, we see the serious impact of unwise communication in an already dysfunctional family. We see in these pages the sin of slander, verse 2, the sin of favoritism, verses 3 and 4, and the sin of pride, verses 4 to 8. 
These are all present. But while it seems like all is lost for the family of Jacob, because as we've been learning through Genesis, they are one big dysfunctional family, God will actually use the bad communication that results in hostility for his ultimate good purposes. That is, God will use their unwise communication to fulfill his goal of saving this broken, unstable family. And so if you have your Bibles, look with me at verse 2. The first reason for hostility in the family is the bad communication of slander. And it's not as clear in the text, but there's slander here. Look with me at verse 2. Quote, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's, father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. In the account of Genesis, Jacob had two primary wives, Rachel and Leah. And it reveals here that he has another two wives. These are secondary wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. And in his flocks with his half-brothers, Joseph communicated a bad report about them to his father. He's basically dobbing on them. At first glance, it appears that Joseph is doing a good and noble thing. This is what the children's Bibles often tell us. But the words bad report literally mean the whispering of hostile people. And so in other words, Joseph is spreading slander like a fool. What is slander? Well, slander is the action of making a false spoken statement which causes damage to a person's reputation. It's like, think about it, it's like gossip, but on steroids. Sometimes gossip can be true. Slander is like saying, there's a lie here, but let's make it gossip. And that is like all about character assassination when it goes public. And so slander is brutal. And Joseph is really here acting like the slanderer. He's playing the gossip. He is the family talebearer. He's making spiteful rumors. And it's a sinister tactic to guarantee the approval of his father, even though it will create alienation between him and his brothers. And so we see here that slander, that form of communication, is a serious sin. And we read about slander all throughout the scriptures. Slander can be deceptive, destructive, devious at its core. Slander, the Proverbs teaches us, is an abomination to God. Proverbs 16:18 tells us that he hates a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Slander is like gossip on steroids. The gossip collects our secrets and passes them on to others. The slander makes up its own secrets and broadcasts them to the world. And so slander is a brutal force. It lies in wait for blood. It destroys neighbors. It separates close friends. It tries to break people apart. Slander has no place in our lives. It must be put to death. If we follow Christ, Paul tells us, it is a ruthless power. And so we must then remember the words of Jesus. He said this, and it's going to be quite hard to hear because it seems like Jesus is judging us. But there is a goal here. Quote in Matthew 12, 36. Everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment 
for every empty word they have spoken. Unquote. Wow. Confronting? Frightening, maybe? Is there any hope for those who are infested, influenced by the role of being a slander? Well, friends, praise be for the gospel. The answer is yes. Jesus died even for slanderers. Past, present, future. But he does not desire us to stay this way. Jesus wants us to grow, to grow in holiness, to be consecrated, to not be who we once were. If we really struggle with slander, God wants you to move beyond that identity that you once put partook in. He now asks us to press the divine knife, the word of God, against our festering wounds of slander. He asks us to confess our sin until all that infection is drained out of us. It's meant to be a gross image because slander is gross. And then once the wound is dried, what do we do? We continue to wrap it up with the grace of God. We remind ourselves that Christ has covered even my sin, which is slander. And as we remember that we are saved by grace, God, through the Holy Spirit, helps us to overcome that past way of life that was destroying my family, my church family, my communities, wherever I was a part of. And so, friends, the first form of bad communication is, what is it? Slander. The second form of bad communication that rips the family apart in Genesis here is favoritism. And this is non-verbal communication. This is someone being clothed with something awesome to make them stand out so that everyone else is envious. And so look with me at verses 3 to 4. Now Israel, which is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. The account tells us that Jacob communicates his deep love, affection, favoritism for Joseph by blessing him with a robe. What color is that robe in children's stories? Multicolored? In the Hebrew, it just refers to a nice robe. There was multicolored robes back then. It could have been a robe that I wear at 8.30 on Sunday if you've come to our traditional service. Something white, maybe with a bit of color and things tied to it. Whatever it was, it was a robe that made him stand out to look different. The robe was either a many-colored robe or a decorative one with long sleeves. Whatever the robe looks like, the gift showed a clear bias towards this son, Joseph. And remember, there was 12 sons. It appears that Jacob had not learnt from the past because, remember, he struggled with favoritism as a child. His father, Isaac, loved who? Esau. And now he's just repeating history. This is how family, broken families work. You say, oh, I'm never going to be like my father, but you end up being like your father in many ways. Broken families. And jo Jacob here, Israel, 
is acting like someone who favoritizes. He does favoritize. And this is creating friction and schism in the family to the point where there is now a deep hostility towards Jacob and his son Joseph. So we see now, we've looked at slander, ripping the family apart. Now favoritism is ripping the family even more apart. And so the special love of Jacob for Joseph created hostility in the family. And here's another application for us, friends. Favoritism also creates hostility in the church of today. There's so much wisdom from this little book in the New Testament called James. And in James chapter 2, James says this to the church. Ready? James chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into our meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you, sit, you stand there or sit on next to my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Unquote. Wow. I, hear, I heard a story of a man who was becoming a pastor of a church over in America and he dressed like a homeless person one day before he was appointed the pastor. He, and they said, we've got a guest preacher. He was dressed like a homeless man. And the homeless man walked up and started preaching. Now, he looked like one. He wasn't. But it was trying to show people that there is often, even in the modern church, clear bias, prejudice, discrimination. And so how do we show favoritism today? Well, apart from judging people on their attire, we might judge people based upon their education, gender, ethnicity. One of the deepest flaws in Scone, and this is going to hurt a lot of people here, is our discrimination against new people. One person said to me this week, in effect, quote, there are three types of people who live in Scone. First, these are my words, the purebred locals. Second, the adopted residents. They may have lived here for 50 years, but they're still not locals. And third, the transient people. Unquote. The person shared how it's rare to break into these three groups. And mostly the group of the elitist pure, purebreds is hard to break into. From this group, I must confess, I often walk downtown without any kind of clergy attire. And I listen to people. And it really saddens me. I've heard racial slurs, unfair judgment in person from locals, particularly against our islander community. And I share this example for a reason. Although the people of Scone are not the church, the people who live in Scone make up the church. And in other words, the prejudice that causes division and hostility in our own town has the power to divide the body of Jesus Christ here. And so favoritism can make us people who hate rather than love. 
people who judge rather than listen, people who reject rather than welcome. Like slander, the sin of favoritism is a destructive force. It actually poisons our diversity as the body of Christ. It results in a beige church with people who all look the same. The body of Christ is not meant to be this way. One pastor in Sydney, Ray Gillia, who, who used to run uh, a church full of multiculturalism, um, says this, quote, Christianity covers all classes, all cultures, all personality types, all kinds of politics, unquote. He also says, no category of humanity is exempted. He then says, when the church culture resists favoritism, we become a beacon of light in a world filled with bias and where prejudice and special treatment are the norm. Unquote. Ouch. I posted that on Facebook this week. That treat like that pierced my heart. We are called to be a community where all people have the opportunity to come and worship God. We should be people of multicolor, everything. But sadly, what we do is we isolate and discriminate and we're nothing like, we're just the same, sorry, as the world around us when we're called to be a beacon of light. And so the vision of Jesus Christ is to build a community that shows no partiality, James 2.1. In obedience to our Lord Jesus, let us then abandon favoritism and pursue his radical, group-shattering grace. At morning tea, let us break down favoritism by talking to people unlike ourselves. The other alternative is a church full of hostility. And friends, what happens when there's hostility? The family begins to break apart till there's nothing left. Hard words to share, isn't it? But friends, please know again, and I'll repeat what I said before, the blood of Christ even cleanses over that. So if that's something that you struggle with, know that you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. But now Christ says, let us work on that wound so it doesn't continue to infester throughout the entire church. Friends, there's one more thing that I'd like to look at. So we've looked at two forms of bad communication, slander, favoritism. Now we're going to look at pride. Verses 5 to 8 with me. We see pride at work as Joseph declares his dream to his brothers in a pompous way without realizing the effect it would have on them. Genesis 3, 37 verses 5 to 8. Quote, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And so Joseph shows a lack of wisdom in this pompous communication. The dream communicates that he will rule over his brothers 
Imagine that, saying that to brothers who already hate him after what's been happening previously. While the dream is true, Joseph shows himself to be quite arrogant here. The dream is communicated like a prideful brag to his brothers. In the context of slander and favoritism, he should have kept the dream to himself. But instead, the pompous pride got the better of him. And he communicated this to his brothers. It was like pouring hot coals onto his envious brothers. Their hatred towards him has only increased. Joseph here is acting foolishly. He illustrates Proverbs 16, 18 perfectly. Pride comes before a disaster and before stumbling comes an arrogant attitude. Joseph exemplifies the sin of pride and it will have some pretty major consequences. While it's important to speak truth, while it's important to speak truth, we must do it with wisdom. Effective communication is one of the most important skills in life. Even if our words are true, if they are delivered in the wrong context, or like here with pompous pride, we will be afflicted with hatred. This is exactly what happened to Joseph. The hatred of his brothers resulted in him being sold into what? Slavery. They were that angry. But while it seems like the slander, the favoritism, the pride leading to hostility in the family would devour him completely, God used all this. And this is the crazy thing about the Bible. God used this brokenness, this unwise communication for his ultimate good. God turned the unwise communication in this broken family into their salvation. In his good, wise and sovereign will, God used the slander and pride of Joseph, the favoritism of Jacob and the hatred of his brothers to rescue the whole family from famine. Who would have thought? In Egypt, God would place Joseph, because he went to slavery in Egypt, God would place Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt, right under the emperor. In this position of authority, he would prepare for a lethal famine, which would result in the redemption of his dysfunctional family. And so in a spirit of love, Joseph would say to his brothers when they came, God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And so God can even use our evil human deeds to fulfill his plan of salvation. And friends, we not only see this in the story of Joseph, we see this in the story of Jesus. Joseph is like Jesus in many ways, apart from the slander and the pompous pride. As the brothers of Joseph conspired to kill him, so the brothers of Jesus conspired to kill him. As the brothers of Joseph sold him for 20 pieces of silver, so Jesus, Judas, who was like a brother, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. As the brothers of Joseph handed him over to Gentiles, so the brothers of Jesus handed him over to the Pilate, the governor. As God used the evil deeds of the brothers of Joseph to save his people, so God used the evil deeds of the brothers of Jesus to save his people. But Jesus is greater than Joseph. 
Jesus is God's only son, not only, who not only became a servant and suffered humiliation and scorn, he died and rose again to save God's people. And whereas Joseph saved Israel from an earthly death through famine, Jesus saves us from eternal death caused by sin. Jesus' death accomplished our atonement. Paul says it like this, quote, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, unquote. And so God can use our slander, our favoritism, our pride, that all results in hostility to fulfill his grand plan of salvation. This is the mystery of how God works, friends. And so be comforted in our brokenness that we experience now. In the mystery of God's extraordinary will, he can turn our brokenness and even use our brokenness to save people's lives. To draw them closer to the God of amazing love who offers us salvation in Christ. And so friends, please know this. Well, it seems like the world is chaotic. Hands up if you think it's chaotic. It is. God is wise. God is in control. God is behind the scenes of this broken world, using broken people and things to assure that his gospel will continue to go forth, enter into people's souls through the preaching of the word so that salvation may continue to go forth. Wow, God indeed works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so friends, my point is this today. God can turn unwise communication, slander, favoritism, pride, which results in hostility into our salvation. Or more simply put, God can use our unwise communication to bring salvation. And so